If you're new with us, yeah, I guess sometimes we just start that way, but uh, we're going we're gonna to fly through this morning. Uh, we, got, we obviously won't be able to cover all of our ground, but thank you for letting the Holy Spirit interrupt things this morning. I love when he uh, does that. You know, one thing, I, um, I think it's a natural tendency of our flesh to resist weak and broken moments. You, you, you ever feel that? Like, so where you feel like God is pushing you kind of the verge of brokenness to the verge of maybe confession of sin or, or admitting weakness and your flesh, is, it resists it. Like, no, 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 that's not me. I don't need that. I don't want to, I don't, nope, nope. Vulnerability is a bad thing, right? And our flesh resists it. But the more that we break in front of God, the more that God brings us to the point of brokenness and we allow him to break us, the more we realize that that brokenness and that vulnerability in front of God is the safest place on the earth. Because he's always going to deal with us in his kindness. Even if he tells us some of the hardest things he's going to tell us. And sometimes he's going to tell us hard things. God had to speak a hard, I mean, I'm like, I'm going, really? Seriously, God, I'm about to go and teach Hebrews 6. You want to tell me a hard thing right now? The song before, I'm supposed to, right? And, but he always does it in his perfect timing and in his perfect goodness. And so uh, I, I guess I'm learning. I would definitely say I'm, I'm learning this. I'm learning to be okay staying broken in front of the Lord. Because I know that it's, that vulnerability, though it feels scary, it's the safest place I can be. Because he's the one that can build back up. He's the one that can restore. He's the one that's going to do it in the right way. Uh, so uh, don't fear that brokenness. The Lord is pushing you to uh, confessing your weakness and your brokenness before him. Let him do it. Don't resist that. Uh, it, it'll, be, uh, it'll be phenomenal as he, as he heals and restores you. And it may be a process, but let him do it. He's a good dad. All right, go to Hebrews 6. We're going to jump in. Uh, while you're going there, I want to make a couple just real quick notes. Uh, really, really, really excited about what God is doing in your generation, how he's raising up leaders. And we're, we're, trying, to, uh, we're trying to really walk with the Lord in, in uh, the process of raising up leaders here at Fredonia Hill. And so you guys... The reason we're asking you to do Life Group for Kids, I mean, we just believe that you guys can lead in that generation. So we're asking you to do those things. You've heard of our uh, discipleship school. We want to equip and prepare a generation to lead in whatever spheres of influence you're going to go into. You guys are going to go all over the globe and do all sorts of crazy cool things. And we want to uh, see you leave here in your time at this church equipped uh, in the gospel, equipped to walk in obedience to the Holy Spirit. And so that's what discipleship's uh, schools for. You've heard of our Armor Bear program where we have uh, college students who come and, and give a year of their lives and work uh, under the umbrella of a, of a ministry within, uh, within this church. And the goal is that as they support the vision and the leadership uh, of the pastoral staff here, that they'll learn how to lead out in, the own, in their own vision that God has given them as they, as they leave here. And so we've been doing that for the last four years, and that program has grown, and you guys know many of our armor bears, and we're so pumped because God has allowed us to kind of add a new tier uh, because some of these armor bears are, um, are feeling specifically called to Nacogdoches and Fredonia Hill. And uh, what's really cool is that we've been able to now add a new tier uh, kind of above the, the armor bear. It's another step above armor bear uh, where we're having uh, some of those people come on staff with us, and they're called uh, ministry assistants. So I want to just kind of make you aware of a couple of those people. Uh, Melina uh, Ordway, if you just will stand. Everybody knows Melina, but she did announcements uh, this morning. She's uh, going to be the ministry assistant. So she's come on staff with us, ministry assistant for college uh, ministry. So for you guys, um, if you have any questions, anything like that, she is, uh, she is here. God has given her a great, great vision for us really getting on campus 
Um, and I, we're so pumped about that. So would you just start to pray with us? We're really developing. We're, we've committed a year to the Lord of, uh, of developing strategy for getting on campus and being effective on our campus. And so she's helping me work on that. And uh, God has given her some phenomenal vision for that. And then John, uh, did you leave? Where is he? Did he leave? Where's he at? He left. Okay, well, um, anyway, he just led. And John is uh, our uh, ministry assistant for uh, worship ministry. So just excited about what God's doing there. I want to make you guys aware of those, uh, those changes. Uh, so if I refer you to Melina, it's a good thing. All right. Hebrews 6, are you there? We're going to fly, friends. We gotta, we're going to really, really, really fly. So here's what we're going to do. This, I, this is a, a message or a, a series of messages I've been really excited about doing. A little bit, to be really honest with you, pretty intimidated about doing because uh, the book of Hebrews is a pretty, it's a pretty challenging uh, book and especially chapter six. There's a lot of really tough stuff in there. Uh, so it's been something that has been somewhat intimidating to do. But, but as I was reading it one time, this stuck out to me. Um, if you're, if you're in uh, Hebrews six, go to verse, uh, well, just start in verse one. It says, therefore, let us leave elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of, then he makes a list, Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. And he says, and this will do if God, God permits. And so he, he just briefly mentions those things as laying a foundation because he, if he, he, he's saying that if this foundation is laid, we get to go on to more mature things. And the question that I asked was, okay, what's my doctrine on those things? Do I have that foundation? That list that he gives, he just kind of breezes through it. And there's some hard things in there, right? Just, you know, just eternal judgment. You have, you have a pretty good handle on that, so let's move on, right? Uh, you know, eternal judgment, repentance, faith towards God, you know, all these things. Right, we got all that, right? So let's just move on. And I went, whoa, we need to stop. <laughs> we need to stop. And, and I've just been waiting and desiring to, to teach through this. Uh, and I feel like this is the time that the Lord is, uh, is allowing us to do it. But uh, what I want to do is kind of start a series called uh, The First Things. Uh, I guess we could call it that. I'm not into naming messages, but uh, we could call it the first thing. It's these beginning foundation things that he lists. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go through over the next few weeks, and we're going to go through that list. And we're going to kind of develop an understanding, uh, a, a doctrinal understanding uh, of, of that list. All right? Because if that's the foundation, and, and he says we need this foundation, we don't need to lay again the foundation of these things because we need to go on to maturity. I'm going, does anybody else want to just go on to maturity? Just one. Okay. So, you, all right, a few of us will go on to mature. And I want to be mature in Christ. Does anybody else? Yes, yeah, so I want to be, right? I want to be able to move on in maturity. I want God to be able to tell me deep things. I want to be able to open the scripture and walk deeper with God. And I'm going, okay, if, if this foundation is necessary in order to do that, if this kind of this understanding is necessary, well, let's make sure that we lay that foundation. Because we all want to go on to maturity. No one wants to stay as a baby. And so, um, so what we're going to do is really lay that foundation. So be praying through that with me. But that's what we're going to be tackling over the next several weeks. It'll probably take us eight to ten weeks, I would imagine. Um, I don't know. It may take us five. You guys are brilliant. And uh, so we'll get it in five. But uh, I don't know how long it'll take. That's what we're going to be for the spring. Okay? So to do that... Um, I know we're going to take, and this is a little bit tricky, we're going to take an excerpt out of Hebrews 6 and study a list, but I still feel like it's important for you to understand 
the list in the midst of Hebrews 6. Okay, so what's happening in the book of Hebrews? Specifically, what's he addressing when he talks about this list? So that's what we're going to try to cover today. So uh, if, if you're into that kind of thing, if you, if you love the background of text, then you're going to love this. If you don't, uh, you've got about a, I don't know, 20-minute nap that you can take. Um, just kidding, if you sleep, I'm going to get you. <laughs> I had this uh, high school, uh, what was he, chemistry teacher, and he would carry around a yardstick, and I'm still from the era of desks. I don't know if y'all do that anymore, but we had these big desks, and they were hollow on the inside, so you could put your books in. You guys, you guys, okay. So they're hollow, right, and no, no one really had any, it's not like we brought a bunch of stuff and put it in there, I don't know, but uh, he would walk around with a yardstick, and if you fell asleep, that yardstick would come crashing down across your desk, and it would, I mean, you, you talk about just ringing your ears and waking you up. I never fell asleep in that class because it was terrifying. So I'm going to start carrying around your stick. Okay, here we go. So here's just some history, and then we're going to get into the, the, the sp- some specifics, okay? So this was probably, there's a lot of guesses. I'll just tell you this. In, in terms of history, uh, authorship, these types of things, Hebrews is hard. And so there's a lot of uh, guesses as to when it was written um, and, and who wrote it. But we're, I'm going to give you kind of the consensus uh, of what people think. So probably written before 70 CE, and they've narrowed it down. They think uh, there's three people that could have written it, um, probably either Paul, Apollos, or Timothy. Okay, so one of those three guys, they feel pretty confident. It's one of those three guys that, that wrote it, um, and there's a large amount of people that think Paul, but Apollos and Timothy, there's, there's some decent uh, cases for those two uh, having written it. We don't know exactly what church this was written to. We know it was addressed to a body. There's several things in the letter that tell us this was addressed to a body of believers, but we don't know specifically uh, where that body uh, of believers was, but we know that this was a church that was in trouble, okay? So this was written to a church that was, that was in trouble, uh, a church in danger of backsliding. Uh, one of the reasons was that there's, there's uh, immense pressure uh, because of the lack of Christ's return. You know, I think a lot of times the, the early church really had this idea of the return of Christ being somewhat imminent, being that, that within uh, maybe the next months or weeks or years, the return of Christ is going to come. And so you can imagine as that tarries, as that kind of uh, labors and delays uh, beyond what their expectation was, there starts to be a little bit of pressure, right? There starts to be a little bit of mockery. There's also the thought that they were backsliding because there was a, they were surrounded by a culture uh, that thought it was really kind of dishonorable to follow a crucified king, right? These, these people are lifting up and exalting Jesus who's been crucified and, and the culture around him is going, man, that's a, that's, he's dead, right? You, this is not a good thing to be honoring a, a, dead, uh, a dead king that it was kind of a, uh, a weird thing to do and so there was pressure there. And then just, just persecution in general. What's interesting is that the, the writer of Hebrews feels like the best solution to their issue is to really portray a high Christology. And what that means is just he's going to go in depth in the book of Hebrews lifting up who is Jesus, right? So he's going to talk about the priesthood uh, of Jesus. He's going to go in probably greater detail than anywhere else in the scriptures really defining the, the details of who Christ is as the Messiah, 
And I think it's really interesting that this is his solution to their backsliding. And it makes you feel like they were probably getting a lot of pressure in terms of Christ's not returning and his crucifixion because he's going, no, 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 let me assure you, let me reassure you that this is who Christ is. I mean, he goes into detail to confirm who Christ is. So that's kind of the, uh, the context of the book. I want to read to you. I don't do this very often, but I, I, th- I thought this was really well written from the New Interpreter's Bible Commentary, just kind of the tone of Hebrew. So I'm going to just read several passages. You'll get an idea of the tone of the whole book. You with me? So here, it's, uh, there, uh, let us hold fast to our confession. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. See that you do not refuse the one who is... Uh, Who is speaking? For if they did not escape when they refused the one who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject the one who warns us from heaven? Anyone who has violated the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by those who have spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified, and outraged the spirit of grief, uh, spirit of grace? You hear the intense language here that he is using. The writer does not think the addressees have already fallen away or are yet in the condition of Esau who found no chance to repent even though he sought the blessing with tears. In fact, better things are expected of these believers in view of their past record of love and good works, a record that has not totally come to an end. The author recalls that uh, past during which they were cheerful, generous, and caring under most difficult circumstances and asks them not to abandon what they possessed as dearer than life itself. So these people, you get the idea, right? They're teetering on the edge. And so he uses some really intense language about do not fall away, do not walk away. But he also uses really hopeful language and kind of draws on who they've been in the past, recalls their record and says, it's not over. We have to press on. We have to get up, kind of dust yourself off, renew your zeal to the Lord, renew your zeal to the cause of Christ and start walking again in a new way. You would, so that, that's kind of the tone, it, not if you kind of understand now the tone of Hebrews. It's a really intense book. There's a lot of really interesting things about Christ in there, but when you see it from the tone written to the church, uh, you get the idea that this is a very intense, desperate move, right? He is, he is believing that they are teetering right on the edge, and he's really, really, really exhorting them to stand back up. You guys with me? All right. So what we're going to get Kind of this this, uh, pressing to be mature, which is going to happen in uh, Hebrews 5 and then a little bit more in Hebrews 6, is kind of sandwiched in this this declaration of the priesthood of Christ. So have you guys uh, ever heard of the name Mekeseldek? You probably have a lot of friends named Mekeseldek. And uh, so, no, nobody? Okay, I don't either. (laughs) So uh, he's, he's explaining how Christ is in the order of the priesthood of Mekeseldek. And what he's, he, he stops kind of in the middle of this argument and is going to push them to maturity. So we're, what we're going to look at is kind of right in the middle of that, uh, of that explanation. And he says that we have to move on to deeper things. Okay, you ready? So let's read. We're going to read and we're going to start in Hebrews 5. So just go back a page. I just want us to get a good running start of this. Uh, at this, and then uh, so Hebrews five one, and then we'll run fast. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. 
Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does so uh, for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Okay, so he's talking about the priesthood. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So you see, now we got this momentum, right? He's talking about Christ, that he's a high priest. He's qualified to be a high priest for us. And then... Verse 11, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become, what's he say? Dull of hearing. So you get the sense, he wants to say more, right? He wants to keep going in this argument, in this uh, explanation of who Christ is as a high priest, but he stops, and this is where we really learn about his audience. He says, we have a lot to say here, but it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. There's mature things to understand, but whoa, you're dull of hearing. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I'm going to keep reading. I want us to get the whole context here. He says, so so based on that argument, chapter 6, verse 1, therefore, right? What do we always ask? What's the therefore, therefore, right? So you know that he's connecting two arguments, okay? So all of what he's just said, here's Mekeseldeck, I want to tell you more, but you become dull of hearing. You need to be trained, and, and you should be teachers by now. And he makes this pause, and then he says, therefore, let us leave elementary doctrine of Christ, the elementary doctrine of Christ, and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So we get an idea of where this group of believers was. Verse, one, verse 11 of chapter 5 says they were dull of hearing. And uh, verse 12 says that they should have been teachers by now. Verse 13 says that they're living on milk, that they're unskilled that's a strange, I mean, think, think about that, that accusation that they're unskilled uh, in the word of righteousness because they're children, right? Now we have to do a harder thing and we have to look at ourselves. And we have to ask the very same question. Could the same argument be made on our behalf? Where are we? Could the writer here look and observe what's happening at Fredonia Hill? Could, could he come into this room and look at you and go, wait a minute, how long have you been believers? How long have you known Christ? How long have you had the preaching of the word? How long have you been worshiping? You should be teaching by now. You should be, you should be out there uh, explaining righteousness, explaining Christ. You ought to be doing that by now. And yet here you still are grappling with the elementary things. That's a hard word for us, right? 
that's a hard word for us, and I think many of us find ourselves there. Some, I mean, we have to really ask the question, are we able to move on into more and uh, mature things? He says, therefore, let us move on. He doesn't want to teach again the elementary things. He has an expectation that they know them, okay? So that's what's really interesting. You know, you would think that he would stop there and teach again the elementary things, wouldn't you? He makes that list, and my, you know, when I first read it, I, I thought, okay, he's going to make that list, and then he's going to start explaining the list. But he doesn't. He just tells them, you ought to know this by now, so we know that they know it, but what's the problem? Is the problem that they don't know the elementary things? That's not the problem. They're not practicing He says, you ought to have been teachers by now. You know all of this stuff. Here's the deal. You're not practicing it. This is where it really, 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 really challenges us. Because we are, I would say, as a church, we are in great, great jeopardy when we don't allow the foundational biblical principles, our basic theology, our basic understanding of Christ, of faith, of salvation, of repentance, of all these things, when we don't allow those basic things that we know to inform and change our lives, we become just like they were. We become totally dull of hearing. We become totally apathetic. We become totally immature. The accusation is this. Based on what you know, you should be here. Why are you here? That's a hard word, isn't it? That's a hard word. Based on what you've experienced, based on your theology, based on these basic principles, you should be here. And I want to tell you deeper things, but I can't because you're sitting here in absolute immaturity. The problem is not that they didn't know it. The problem is not, uh, the, sorry, the problem isn't that they didn't know it. The problem is that they're not practicing it. And not practicing it made a culture of apathy within that church. Think about how quickly that can happen. We sit around, and I think you see this in Western church all the time. Pray to God it's not true in this room. But we sit around and we all become well-informed. We all have some understanding of the basic principles. But when no one gets up to act, and you've heard me talk about this uh, many times before, the story of David. They all knew that they had victory, right? The whole army standing before Goliath all knew they had an understanding of the basic principle that they had victory, but no one actually got on the battlefield. So very quickly, a whole culture of defeat developed. You can see where we know these things. I mean, we even think about what happened this morning. We talk about being broken before God, and we all know I need to be broken before God, that this needs to happen. But what happens? We all kind of think, okay, maybe I just need to totally fall apart in front of the Lord. But we look around, and nobody else is. And very quickly, this knowing of needing to have be broken before the Lord, we look around and analyze, and a whole community's not doing it. And so now, though we know it, we're apathetic in actually doing it, and we become totally useless. You with me? This is tough. I know. This is a hard word. A culture of apathy can set in really, really, really quickly when the people of God don't put into practice the things that God has taught us and shown us. And if anybody, if anybody ought to have a high level of accountability to be living based on what we know, it is us in the Western church. We have the access to more information than any group of believers on the face of the earth and, and, and of all time. 
You can study and read and know basically anything in this book. You can find somebody that's talking about it. You can find somebody that's written it. You can find some explanation of it. You can study commentaries and versions. And we are inundated with information, yet we are weak and ineffective because the information that we have hasn't transferred into our lifestyle. And we've become a culture of apathetic people who know the truth of God but won't risk anything in order to live it. And I think the writer of Hebrews could come and write this very thing to us. Are you kidding me? You know this? You know the Greeks, the Greek word of this? Who cares if the Greek word doesn't apply in your life? Who cares what you know if there's no application? And I think we have to be really, really, really careful with all of our information. We're going to be held accountable to it. So here's the other thing, though. Uh, well, real quick, I, one of my favorite passages and uh, a group of guys that I meet with and I were, were memorizing these passages because they're so uh, they're so difficult to deal with, so good, such good accountability passages. But in Second Peter chapter one, basically says that you can participate in the divine nature. That what God has done means that you can participate in the divine nature of God. This is who you ought to be. And and then he says, and these qualities ought to be present in your life. Things like godliness and brotherly affection and patience and endurance and steadfastness. He lists these qualities that if you know Christ, this ought to be exploding in your life. All these character things. And then in verse 8, he says, whoever lacks these qualities, this is crazy. Whoever lacks these qualities, basically, if you know and it's not transforming your life, you become so nearsighted that you are blind, having forgotten that you've been cleansed from your former sins. And if that's not a word of indictment to us, that if these things aren't exploding in our life, if godliness isn't exploding in our life, if the walk of righteousness isn't just totally exploding in our life based on what we know, then we become so nearsighted that we've been blind, having forgotten our salvation. Right? I'm glad we're talking about the easy stuff in church this morning. We must, listen to me, we must seek to actively grow and mature in Christ. You must. The enemy would love nothing more than for you to know Christ and then know things and have no experience of the life that goes with it. Because then, not not only are you totally useless, but you walk out into a lost and broken world and you're the one that's supposed to know, you're the one that's supposed to be healed and set free, and you know, you're not any different than anybody else. The enemy loves that. He loves to make that immature believer the poster child for Christianity in the Western world. That's why to the rest of the world, we've just become, we've just become a bunch of Republicans. That's what they think about when they think about Christians. We're just a bunch of pro-life Republicans. We've been reduced to a political stance. Am I pro-life? Absolutely. <laughs> but is that, the, is that the, only thing, the whole thing that informs my, my theology? Absolutely not. When I walk into a room, there ought to be light in dark places. Don't reduce me to a political stance. I'm so much more than that. God has put himself in me. I ought to change every room that I walk into. Every time I talk to somebody, they ought to see Christ in me. They ought to be affected in a way that they may not acknowledge, but they'll know they've been in the presence of somebody very, very different. 
Are you with me? Ain't nothing wrong with being pro-life Republican. Ain't nothing wrong with it. Stand up and holler. I'm not saying anything bad. But I think the enemy loves to reduce us to something that's worldly and go, this is a Christian. And the world looks at it and just goes, ah, I was hoping for something more. Mm. Please, God, don't let anybody look at my life and go, that's Christianity. I was hoping for something more. I needed real hope. I need real freedom. And I came into contact with this believer and I walk away disappointed because I thought they had something. I thought they might have had that key to life that they always talk about, but they just are something different. You with me? So we have to actively grow and mature in Christ. And I'm going to stop here uh, because, yeah, this will be a good spot to stop. So, but here's what that looks like, real quick, and I, and I really want to make this point because I think we can get skewed. I say something like we have to actively seek to grow and mature in Christ, and what we do is we hear, I got to get more information. I got to get more information. I got to go, and if, that, if that's what that means, I got to know more. I got to know more. Well, what you know not being put into practice is the problem. Don't go get more, <laughs> Right? Nothing wrong with learning. Nothing wrong with getting deeper into the word. I would encourage you to do those things. But if you're not willing to put into practice the simple things that God has spoken in your life, knowing more is not going to help you. Christian maturity is not about what you know. It's about what you're willing to apply. You hear me? I was in a room with one, seriously, one of the, a guy that uh, if, if you met him immediately, you would just know the kindness of Christ, the inclusiveness of Christ. He's one of those guys, you probably met somebody like this, that when you, you feel like you've been their best friend forever. You know people like that? You, it's like the first time you've met them, and you feel like they, they know you. They love you. You know what I'm saying? And, and this guy was, was one of those people. And I, I, Lindsay and I are sitting, and he and his wife were at our house, and we're, and we're chatting, and he was He was frustrated. And he goes, man, I, I, I wish I was more mature in the faith. I wish, that, I wish there was more uh, maturity about me. I want to be able to, 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 to teach and to explain the way that so-and-so and so-and-so does. And I go, dude, you're missing it. You're one of the most mature believers that I know. Why? Because the simple things of God, the character of God has totally overtaken your life. You're a walking example of the love and the goodness of Christ. That's actually maturity. Don't be deceived to believe that your maturity is about what you know and what you can explain and how deep you can go. Your maturity is what you're practicing. So that's why Paul says we don't want to lay again this foundation uh, because you should already know it. But if you know it, you should be practicing it. These are the simple things. Just put it into practice. You with me? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through and we're going to study these things. Because I, 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 seriously, I think, and this is another problem. I'm not going to talk about it uh, today. I'll talk about it next week. I think we, ha- I think we do have pretty uh, poorly informed theology with all that we know I think we kind of have this idea that somebody else knows it, so I don't have to. And so we don't pursue doctrine. We don't pursue theology because somebody else already knows it, and I can just read about it. I don't have to know it for myself. Baloney, you will be deceived. You can't refer them to me when you're pressed. I can't refer them to Zach Weems and go, hold on, hold on, Zach Weems got to answer for me. I got to know what I know what I know so that when I stand in front of adversity, I can stand. With all this information, I still think we have a pretty ill-informed theological and doctrinal uh, basis. And so I want to talk about these little things, but here's the deal. Don't, don't fall into the trap. If we talk about them, you're going to make a promise with me today. If we talk about them, we're not just going to talk about them. 
Because the first one on the list, friends, the first one, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. You're going to have to put, we're going to have to together put that into practice if we're going to talk about it. And we're not going to talk about it if we're not going to agree that we're going to put it into practice. You hear me? So here's your oath. Nodding heads will be an oath. If we're going to study it, we're going to practice it. You with me? So shake my hand, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? We're going we're gonna to go through it. But our maturity will not be measured in how much we can know about the topic. It will be measured in as we know do we put into practice. You with me? Everybody smile. All right. Let's pray. God, help us to, help us to know, but God, forgive us for what we know and don't practice. We just say that to you, God, that's just our cry. We want to be mature in Christ. I mean, goodness gracious, I want to be mature in Christ. I want that in my life. I don't want to stay a baby. I don't want to stay on milk. I want solid food. I want the deep things of you, God. I want to go deeper with you. And so we ask for that, but we pray that you would give us that good foundation that we would have that foundation set and established, not just of what we know, though we ask that you would teach us, that you would inform us, that our brains would know the truth, but also, God, that as we know, we would put into practice. So don't just let us do one or the other. God, don't let us do it. God, bring us to real maturity, which is to know and to practice. And so we ask for that as we learn these things. We pray for maturity. We pray that you would bring us into maturity. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll do kind of part two of that, and then we might jump into a little bit of repentance from dead works and all that fun stuff next week. Cool, you guys are dismissed, not released. Enjoy.